0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutin on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. John F. Kennedy was, was famous for saying a number of things, but, but among them he said, don't get mad, get even. <laughs> now listen, if, if you've ever felt that way, you know if, if you've ever been, been un, un, unfairly targeted, unjustly attacked, if, if you've ever cried out for justice, then you can probably relate to David here in this passage this morning. Because David, d- despite the fact that he, he's been faithfully serving King Saul, we, we see that, that, that Saul, on the other hand, driven by jealousy, uh, driven by paranoia, Saul has been hell-bent on trying to kill David. In fact, from chapter 21 to the end of this book is kind of the final section of the book. And in this last section of the book, we see that, that David, a- a- at no fault to his own, is, is now, he's now on the run. He's, he's public enemy number one. He's fleeing from one place to another and to another. And yet this passage reminds us this morning that God is not only a God of love and a God of mercy, but he's also a God of justice. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18 tells us, "'For the Lord is a God of justice.'" So now as we pick it up in verses 1 and 2 we see that that's the cry of this passage. The cry of this passage is a cry for justice, a cry for justice for the people. So with that we see in verse 1 it says David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and fathers uh, his father's house heard of it they went down there to him, and everyone was in, who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So now we see the, the, these, these that gathered to David, and they're described as, as those who, who were in distress, those who were in debt, and those who were bitter in soul. And so it's, it's those who, 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 who had enemies all around them, breathing down their necks, enemies on every side. And not only that, but also those who were in debt. Now, why were they in debt? Well, they were in debt because King Saul kept raising the taxes higher and higher and higher. You know, it's kind of like when Ronald Reagan was president. He said, you know, the, the theme of the government is that if it moves, tax it. If it stops moving, tax it twice. And so uh, the the taxes just kept rising and rising and rising higher and higher to the point that it says everyone who was was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David. Now the word distress, the, the Hebrew is zuk. It describes those who are under intense pressure, intense stress. The word debt, uh, the Hebrew nashach, it's it's a term that that, that describes uh, the, the, the lending with interest, lending money with interest, but it also describes those who have a number of creditors. So you've got the collection agencies calling you and hounding you and calling you and hounding you, and there's no hope in sight, and as a result, it says they, they were bitter in soul. Now the, the, the Hebrew here, mahar nefesh, it's a, it's a term that, that describes those who have been wronged, those who have been mistreated, and now 400 of them show up at David's cave, the cave of Adullam. 400 mistreated, overtaxed people who are bitter, and they're bitter because of the heavy, tyrannical hand of King Saul. And so now they show up at David's cave and make him their leader. And so now David's now the leader of, of like 400 malcontents. I like the way uh, Chuck Swindoll put it. He said, it's bad enough to be in there alone, feeling like a worm, but to have over 400 more crawl in there with you? Now that's a mess. It's like 400 worms in there. And so they're in distress. They're in debt. The economy's collapsing. uh, Taxes are rising. And now they're regretting that they ever made Saul their king. And so now they rally around David. By the way, it's, it's worth noting where David was when they found him, when they gathered to him. Verse 1 tells us he was at the cave of Adullam. Now, there's a couple of different ways to translate the, 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 the name Adullam. Typically, it's translated a place of refuge, but it can also be translated justice of the people or justice for the people. And so we have 400 different men who felt like the one thing that they had in common with with David was that like him, they too were marginalized. They too were oppressed. They too had been disfranchised. That the same king who was oppressing David was oppressing them. And so now they rally around David because they felt like he could be a leader who actually understood their pain understood what they were feeling. They believed that he was looking for the same things that they were looking for, namely justice. Justice for the people. You could even see the protest signs, I'm sure. Now with that, however, as we pick it up in verses 3 through 5, we see that David is looking for greener pastures. Verse 3, and David went from, from there to Mitzvah in Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed there with them all the time that David was was at the stronghold. And and then the prophet Gad came to David and said, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest at Hereth. So David now leaves the cave of Adullam; He now comes to, to mitzvah of Moab. Now, by the way, Moab is on the other side, on the east side of the Jordan River. So here's the idea. The idea is is that is that because the economy was actually good in Moab, I mean, listen, logic would tell you. I mean, common sense would tell you that that Moab is is the place to be. I mean, the economy is good there. I mean, this is the place where you can find jobs, housing is affordable, taxes are lower. And, you know, so so common sense tells you that that listen, if you're leading a group of, of hundreds of malcontents, hundreds of of those who are in distress, in debt, and they're bitter. On top of all of that. Uh, then, then listen, what you're looking for is, 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 is greener pastures. You're looking for some place that has a solid economy, some place that gives a sense of hope. So common sense would tell you that a place like Moab was the place to be. But listen, there are times in life where common sense actually goes against God's sense. Let me say that again. There's times in life where common sense actually goes against God's sense, and this was one of those times. Why? Because Moab was the last place you should be. Why? What was Moab? Or rather, who were the Moabites? Well, in the Bible, the Moabites were the enemy of God's people. In fact, uh, the people of Israel were were strictly warned over and over again to have nothing to do with the Moabites. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, for example. We read, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And so they were warned to, to, to have nothing to do with the people of Moab. In fact, in another passage, in Psalm chapter 60, verse eight, God said, Moab is my wash pot. Now we hear wash pot, we might picture a sink or a basin, you know, maybe you wash your hands in it, maybe you wash your face with it. Uh, really, the Hebrew there would better be translated toilet bowl. God's saying, Moab is my toilet bowl. Now why would God say that? Why would God feel that way about the people of Moab? Well, there were three reasons. Number one, because the Moabites were the descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship with his own daughter. That's reason number one. Reason number two was because we read in Numbers chapter 25, Numbers chapter 25, that King Balak hired the prostitutes of Moab to try to entice the men of Israel into sin. And then finally, reason number three was because the, the Moabites, the people of Moab, worshipped the pagan god Chemosh. Now the, now Chemosh was, a, was, was, a, was a, a statue made out of iron with outstretched arms. And so you would take this, this statue made of iron with outstretched arms, you would place him in the fire, heat him up until, until he was white hot, and then you would take your newborn baby infant, your newborn babies, and lay them on those white hot burning arms and literally burn your babies to death as you offered them to Chemosh. And so because they were murdering their own babies, God said, Moab is my toilet bowl. And so the people of Israel would have nothing to do with the Moabites. Not's the, the Moabites, the people of the land, but what about the land itself? Well, Moab was a, was a, was a, was a mountainous region, again, on the east side of the Dead Sea, the east side of, of, of the Jordan River, and, and yet, and yet it, it had this, this fertile plateau, now when I say fertile, I mean anything and everything could grow there. It was fertile. This fertile plateau that ran like, like for 25 miles or more. And so it, it's green and it's lush. And listen, if, if you're someone who's looking for greener pastures, they don't get any greener than Moab. It's the definition of greener pastures. And, and so common sense would tell you this was the place to be. Now, it's interesting. Uh, this also reminds me of another man in the Bible named Elimelech. Now, Elimelech, uh, the Bible tells us, was a man who was living in Bethlehem. By the way, Bethlehem later gets the nickname the City of David, so he li- he's living in Bethlehem, and all of a sudden, there's a famine in the land. Now, by the way, Bethlehem is a name that means the house of bread or the bread basket, the bread basket of Israel. Why? Because it too was fertile. You could grow anything there, anything and everything could grow there. But this time, there was a famine. There was a drought. The economy of Bethlehem had dried up. But just on the other side of the Jordan, there, there, there was there was beautiful Moab. The economy, I mean, it was it was booming, it was green, it was flourishing, and so Elimelech decides, you know what, it's time to move his family, including his, his wife Naomi and, and their two sons, Machalon and, and Chilion, it's time to move his family to the other side and, and look for greener pastures, you know, you know get, get get a fresh start, go to Moab, only to find nothing but heartbreak after a heartbreak in Moab. Why? Well, it turns out that in Moab, Elimelech dies, as do his two sons, uh, Mahlon and Chilion. They die, leaving Naomi not only a widow, but completely impoverished. She, she's lost everything. She's lost all her possessions. She's lost her husband, and she's lost her two sons. And so now she's forced to go back to Bethlehem, but this time, it basically, she's, she's labeled, she's, she's branded as, as a failure, now, by the way, when she goes back to Bethlehem, she, 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 she doesn't go alone. She goes back with her daughter in law, Ruth. That name may sound, sound familiar to you. There's a book in the Bible with her name in it, the Book of Ruth. Now, in Ruth chapter 4, verse 17, we discover that, that basically Naomi becomes the great grandmother of David. Ruth would be, would be the mother, or, or would be the grandmother of David. Now, by the way, maybe that's what motivated David to go to, to Moab in the first place. Maybe part of his motivation is, is that he knew that he had distant relatives. He had extended family members in Moab. And he's hoping that maybe his extended family members would, would take them in and, and, and have compassion. On them. He might find refuge. He might find shelter there. So he's going there for refuge. He's going there for shelter. He's going there to find greener pastures, much like his forefather Elimelech did generations before. By the way, you ever notice how, how, how certain decisions uh, keep getting repeated over and over in certain families? Like, like it's a pattern, like, like it's a cycle, the same cycle again and again and again, over and over? You know, maybe it's a cycle of alcoholism or, or anger, or like in this case, financial decisions, bad financial decisions. And so we see that, that, that David repeats this pattern. Just like Elimelech had gone to Moab before, David now goes to Moab looking for greener pastures. Now, by the way, the story of Ruth, we should point out, is a story of redemption. Because we see that, that, that it's from her line, not only comes David, but then ultimately from her line comes Jesus himself, the Savior himself. And so it's a story of redemption. As she goes from, from being a Moabitess woman, a woman who was born in God's toilet bowl, an enemy of God to now being a daughter of God. It's a story of redemption. And so David goes to Moab and then we see that he, he leaves his parents basically in Moab while he now returns and goes back to the cave of Adullam, And he stays there until the prophet Gad shows up on the scene and, and, and tells him it's time to leave. Now, by the way, the prophet Gad is kind of this mysterious character who just shows up out of nowhere in the Bible and then disappears almost as fast as he showed up. Now, he does reappear again later on in chapter 24. In chapter 24, he comes on the scene when David numbers the people. And then once again, in 2 Samuel chapter 20, he shows up again when David numbers the people a second time. But this time, David was not supposed to number the people. So when the prophet Gad shows up, he pronounces a judgment on David for numbering the people. But now on this particular occasion, he shows up. He tells David, it's time to flee. It's time to go. It's time to to get out of that area and go to the forest of Judah, the the forest in Hereth. Now, why was it time to go? Well, as we pick it up in verses 6 through 17, we see that it's because Saul was hot on David's trail. Verse 6, now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. And Saul was sitting at Gebeah under the tamarisk tree on the, on its height with a spear in his hand. How creepy is that? You guys just sitting there holding a the spear. He's sitting there with his spear in hand and all of his servants standing about him. Verse seven, And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will will the son of Jesse give uh, every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that, that all of you conspired against me? No one discloses it to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse, uh, no one of you is sorry for me and, and will disclose it to me when th- th- that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie and wait as it is this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite. Remember him from, from the previous chapter? His name even sounds you know like a villain, right? Doeg the Edomite. Who stood by the servants of Saul and he he said, I saw the son of Jesse uh, coming to Nob, uh, uh, to, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine." Then the king sent and summoned Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and in all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, all of them came to the king. And Saul said to them, "'Hear now, son of Ahitub.' And he answered and said, "'Here I am, my lord.' And Saul said to him, "'Why have you conspired against me?' You and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and, and have inquired of God for him, so that he may, so that he has risen up against me to lie in wait, as it is this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, "Who, who among all your servants is so faithful as David, and 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 who's the king's son-in-law and the captain over his bodyguard, and and and, and who's honored in your house? Is is today the first time that that I've inquired of God for him? No." Let not the king impute anything to uh, to his servant or to all his house of, of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand is also with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me but the servants of the king would not put their hand out to strike the priest of the Lord. So Saul finds out, he, he discovers where, where David's hiding along with his men, and, and it's kind of creepy because again, in, in, verse, in verse six, it says that he was under the tamarisk tree with spear in hand. Just sitting there with the spear, always ready to launch his spear at David within a second's notice. Listen, there's some people like that, right? I mean, do you have anybody in your life that's, that's easily triggered Anybody in your life with a hair trigger? Anybody who can go like from zero to 60 in, in a split second? I mean, you know, you're just always on edge when they're around. You know, someone who's, who's just always nursing a, a grudge. You know, someone who, who you know, uh, they, they haven't even seen the person, haven't even talked to the person they're angry with, the person that they hate so much, haven't seen them in years, and yet they are ready within a split second's notice to launch spears their direction. That's Saul. Saul ready at the trigger. And then in verse 7, he turns to the people and he says, hear now, people of Benjamin, will will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? And and will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that that you have conspired against me? Now here's the picture. The picture is is that Saul's public approval rating is at an all-time low. I mean, even to the point that, that his own tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, these were his people. He's a member of the tribe of Benjamin and, and they're no longer supporting him. Uh, many of them have, have now been won over by David to the point now that he says, well, well will the son of Jesse, will, will, will David give you fields and, and vineyards and, and promotions? So from that, we can imply that the idea is, is that Saul, as a fellow Benjamite, fellow member of the tribe of Benjamin, evidently had been doing favors for the, for the tribe of Benjamin. Giving them favors, you know, maybe maybe giving them extra allotments of land, giving them tax breaks, this favor, that favor. You know, basically a politician who's buying votes. And he's basically like, you know what? I've been doing you all these favors, and now it's my turn to cash in a favor or two. I've done you this favor and that favor, and now I'm calling in a couple of favors. And yet we also see how, how paranoid and conspiratorial Saul was. I mean, he's actually convinced that everyone, including his own son, are out to get him. And, and, and Saul is, is, is driven by paranoia to the degree that he believed that there was this coup being planned, that there was this group of people planning a coup to steal his throne from him and then put David on the, on the throne in his place. And so now Ahimelech, because he gave David some food, gave him a sword, the sword of Goliath, the priest now is being charged as being a part of this conspiracy, and now he's been sentenced to death. He calls for his execution, but now the soldiers are, are, are wisely refusing to carry out the order. They're like, no can do. I can't go for that. Woo. All my 80s peeps, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like, they, 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 they can't do it. And yet now as we continue and pick it up in verse 18, we see that there's this this act of injustice, this incredible act of injustice, where ultimately we learn that that ultimately justice is in God's hands. So verse 18 says, Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite, I mean Doeg the Edomite, turned and struck down the priest, and and he killed that day 85 persons who struck, I'm sorry, who wore the linen ephod. In in Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. We'll pause here. So Doeg, it tells us he kills 85 priests, but he doesn't stop there. It says, in addition to that, he also killed men, women, and children, and their livestock. In fact, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, tells us that the total number of people that he slaughtered that day, the total number including priests and men and women and children, uh, the total number of people he slaughtered was 385. 385 innocent people. Listen, this is more than a guy who was making a name for himself. This was more than a power grab. This was a guy who was nursing a grudge. How do we know? Well, because he's called three different times Doeg the Edomite. Not Doeg the Israelite, not Doeg the Jew, because he wasn't Jewish. He was not an Israelite, he was an Edomite. Now, Edom, you have to understand Edom, it was also on the east side of the Jordan River, just like Moab was, meaning that the Edomites were also the sworn enemies of the Jewish people. In fact, you may remember that the Edomites were actually descendants of, of Esau. Anybody remember the, the bitter rivalry between es- uh, Jacob and his twin brother Esau? Because, because Jacob had stolen his brother's birthright? And so, because of that, there was, there was this feud, this, this rivalry that lived on for generations. And when we know from the Bible that, that Jacob became the founding forefather of the nation of Israel, and likewise, Esau became the founding forefather of the Edomites. And so, what this is, this was generational hatred. This was 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 a generational grudge. Hatred that had been passed down and has grown from one generation to another generation. This is sort of the, the Hatfields and McCoys kind of, of of hatred that we're talking about. It's growing and growing and festering and growing. You know, it's like it's like, you know, if if somebody did your family dirty. You know, maybe somebody attacked your dad. Now, maybe, maybe they verbally attacked him. Maybe they attacked his character. They attacked his reputa- reputation. Maybe they attacked him physically. Maybe they even killed him. And, and now you, you've grown up with that, and now you're bitter, and you spend your whole life hating this person, and you spend your whole life wanting to hunt them down and find them and dreaming of the day that you can exact some revenge. That's doeg. Driven by revenge, driven by hatred, he now slaughters 385 innocent men, women, and children. It was an atrocity. It was an injustice. And on the heels of that injustice, verse 20 continues... But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me and do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping." Now, in your mind, I want you to picture the events of the last two, maybe three chapters. And as you do it, what we, what we have in this picture is, is that David's life is kind of on a downward spiral. In fact, at this point, it's really bottomed out at this point. I mean, by now, he's, he's lost his wife, he's lost his job, and he's lost his reputation, and now he's on the run. And so we saw that when he was on the run, he ran to the priestly city of Nob. He goes there, he he talks to the priest, he makes up this this story, this lie, that he's that he's deep undercover, that he's that he's on a secret mission sent by the king. And so now he he tricks Ahimelech the priest to giving him some food and also giving him a weapon, giving him the sword of Goliath. And then from there, David continues on the run. But now he runs to the Philistine stronghold, the city of Gath, which by the way was the birthplace of Goliath. It was Goliath's hometown. So now he goes to Goliath's hometown carrying Goliath's sword in his hand, and he's foolish enough to think that they're going to help him, that they're going to protect him. They don't want to protect him. They want to kill him. And so now he then has to fake insanity to keep them from killing him. He's on the run again, and now this morning we see that he comes to the cave of Adullam, which, as we said, one of the translations of it is justice for the people. And now he gets this news of of Doeg's injustice, how Doeg had had brutally slaughtered not only the priest of not only his family, not only all of the priests, but a total of 385 innocent men, women, and children. And suddenly it hits David that it's his fault. That's what he means in verse 22 when he says, I have occasioned the death of all the persons in your father's house. I think the New King James hits it a little harder when he says, "I have caused the death of all the persons in your father's house. It's my fault." He's saying, "You know what? If 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 I just would have trusted that God was going to take care of me instead of instead of you know going to the priestly city in the first place, or if at a minimum if I wouldn't have lied, if I wouldn't have told Ahimelech this story and told him I was on some kind of a special mission from the king, you know who knows? Maybe Ahimelech and, and the rest of everybody else, maybe they'd still be alive. But this is my fault." I brought this on. And so he's, he's been the unjust target of, of, of Saul's attacks. He's, he's been unfairly accused of, of plotting a coup to try to steal Saul's throne, and now he's on the run. Public enemy number one, and now he's discovered that as a direct result of his actions, 385 innocent people have been unjustly slaughtered. And it's with all of that in mind that David wrote a Psalm. And the Psalm that he wrote is Psalm 52. In fact, the title of Psalm 52 is titled, A Contemplation of David, when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. And so what we're reading in Psalm 52 is a prayer of David. As David pours out his heart, after all this travesty, after all this injustice, this atrocity, he's pouring out his heart. He cries to God. He's praying And as he prays, he cries out and says in Psalm 52, verse 5, he prays and says, God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you out of the land of the living. Now, what was he praying for? He was praying for justice. Now, it's worth noting, by the way, that he was praying for justice and he was not taking matters into his own hands and actually seeking justice. He was praying for justice. But by the way, no one would have blamed him if he did, right? I mean, not one of us would, would, would blame David if he would have hunted Doeg down like the dog he was and killed him. If he would have found Doeg and, and exact, exacted a pound of flesh. If he would have got some, some much-deserved revenge. I mean, none of us would, would, would point the finger and judge him. Not in this day. Listen, we live in the, in the day of the, of the motto of, of mess around and find out. But we don't use the word mess. We use this, word, this F word, you know, F around and find out. I and mean, we're all about payback. We're all about, you know, come at me, bro. W- w- I mean, every one of us, we, we, we would applaud David for going after a guy like this, for messing around and finding out. It reminds me, the other day, my, my wife pointed out on, on Instagram that, that Pastor Chuck Swindle, 90-something years old, still you know, using Instagram. But anyway, you know, he's, he's on Instagram, and he's, you know, he's, you know, he's going through a drive-through window a drive-through restaurant and and he places his order, but the lady behind him she's losing her mind because how long it's taking him to place his order. So she's honking her horn and she's cussing and she's yelling and I think she even flew him a bird or whatever you know. And she's just, I mean, she's just going crazy. So he turns and he and he and he tells the person as he's placing order. He said, you know what? I I'd, I'd like to pay for the for for the for the person's order behind me. So then he pulls up, and she pulls in to make her order. All of a sudden, she's all smiley, and she's waving. She's all, you know, like, thank you, because you know, she discovered he paid for it. You know, and she, She's probably feeling horrible about how, how ugly she was or how, how she was treating him, right? So he pulls up to the next window. He, he shows him both receipts. And then as he says, he, he, he took his food and her food and drove off. <laughs> Payback, right? And judging by the response, every one of us in this room, we would have done the same thing. Not one of us would, 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 would judge David for a little payback. And yet, frankly, David, instead of taking matters into his own hands, instead he prayed and left them in God's hands. Notice in Psalm 52, verse 5, he doesn't say, I will likewise destroy you. He says, God will likewise destroy you. He says, he will take you away. He will pluck, out, pluck you out of the d- dwelling place. He will uproot you out of the land of the living. In short... He left Doeg in God's hands. And by the way, we, we all know what Jesus said. We all know that Jesus said, turn the other cheek, right? That's what it says in Matthew 5.39, turn the other cheek. And, and, and by the way, and I think one of the things that the unbelieving world out there, the one thing that the unbelieving world has a problem with when they hear us talk this way, hear us talk about forgiveness and turning the other cheek, is they're like, you know what, you know, when, when, when you actually do that, when you turn the other cheek, you're allowing this injustice, You know, by turning the other cheek, you're you're allowing those in power to abuse their power and and to to take advantage of people and to oppress people. And so by turning the other cheek, by forgiving, you're allowing it to do. How can you turn the other cheek and allow this injustice? Well, the answer is because I know two things. Number one, I know that they're not mine to deal with. And number two, I know that they're God's to deal with and he will. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There is a God in heaven, and and, and he'll deal with them. They're his to deal with. So we read how, how Doeg, the Edomite, ruthlessly, mercilessly slaughters 300 innocent men, women, and children And and, and, and we're like, how could David just let this pass? How how could David just sit idly by and do nothing, nothing that is but pray? I mean, how could he just let this happen? Answer, because he knew that Doeg was God's to deal with and that God would deal with him. He knew, he, he could trust that God is a God of justice. If you don't believe me, listen to David's own words. David wrote these words in Psalm chapter 9, verse 7. David wrote and said, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He's a God of justice. Now, notice, by the way, whose throne it is. It's God's throne. And notice whose justice it is. It's God's justice. They're not yours to deal with. Why? Because it's not your throne. There is a God in heaven, and you're not him. It's his throne, and justice is in his hands. Again, David wrote these words in Psalm 36, verses 5 and 6. He said, your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies, your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both man and beast. David knew, David trusted that God was a God of justice. So let me ask you, do you have a doe egg in your life? Do you have a Saul in your life? Then let me ask you this. How much do you actually trust God? Do you trust God enough to to leave the dough eggs of your life, to leave the Saul's of your life in God's hands? Because frankly, listen, anyone quite frankly can, can take matters into their own hands and seek justice, but quite frankly, it takes faith to actually leave justice in God's hands. It takes faith to do that. Amen. So, Father, we we pray that you would increase our faith. Lord, sometimes your word is is something we can hear, but it's hard to accept. But we've heard in your word that we're to love our enemies, we're to forgive those who persecute us, we're to be merciful. And so, Lord, for the, the, the doeg in our life, the soul in our life, those that are pursuing us, that are wrongly after us, those who have hurt us, Lord, we, we thank you that you are a God of justice. None of this has left your eyes. You have seen everything, and no stone will be unturned. But at the same time, there is a throne in heaven, and it's a throne of justice, but it's not my throne. It's not our throne. Your God, we're not. So, Lord, we leave them in your hands. We trust you. And so as we trust them into your hands, we also trust ourselves into yours, and that you would work on us and minister to us, help us to heal, help us to grow. And as as you had mercy on us, we pray for them as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.